0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Bem-vindo à Ilha Cast, mais um episódio. Uh, hoje nós temos uma conversa especial. Uh, nos também fala sobre um excelente livro que chama The Making of the Cape uh, Antes de que ali, nos uh, um façam uh, apresentar para uns e introduzir para outros aquele grande instrumental naquele naquela excelente álbum, Mo Bass, Johnny Ramos, uh, pronto, é, aquela música chama Mãe, dedicada para tudo mais calvredianas, tudo mais na toda parte do mundo, para a e que tem nenhuma relação mais íntima, mais uh, especial, na minha opinião, especialmente naqueles inícios de, de anos, de que mãe para ser filho ou filhas. Portanto, está que ali para todo esse episódio de hoje. está dedicado para para tudo, mães, calvardianos, aqueles que são próprios mães, que, é, que, é, que, é próprio que, que cumprem seus, seus deveres, seus responsabilidades, como deve ser. Mas, uh, uh, sem perder mais tempo, hoje nós temos tem uma conversa. Eu preferia sempre nesse programa falava na no crioulo, mas é claro que então, chega uma ocasião que informação. É tão importante, é tão bom, mas à vezes a Catarapa não fala tudo na crioulo para não pôr expressa, para não ter tudo que informação mais melhor uh, Infelizmente, que ele é a única ocasião, mas a uh, informação é incrível. Nós também fazer mais ou menos uma revisão de um, de um, um livro que antiga, e bem conche, recente uma tia interessante interessante, começa a ler é livro e canto começa a ler aquele livro uh, sempre fica a pensar na, 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 na outros calviriãos, outros crioulos, uh, especialmente ali na marca, não só pessoas de minha geração, mas também de geração de, 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 de minha filha, que nesse caso tem um, 12 anos e esse livro lhe é tão importante. Que deve ser um, um livro que o Tatiana Tudo casa calvardianos Não só calvardianos alguém que tem interesse na conche uh, Quem que é, é povo calvardiano ou como um povo E quem é que é calvardiano uh, E também Sempre que tem espaços Entre diferenças uh, Mal entendidos entre gerações uh, Hoje em dia Tinha confusão uh, Entre gerações Também pensa-me a ter, talvez, um, um espaço de entendimento entre os descendentes calverdianos que que, que, que nascem, criam que ali, para, na, naqueles décadas, uns 60, 70 anos, com os recentes calverdianos ou calverdianos lá na Tara. E, e, esse livro ali é esse, foi aquele ponto que está. Um, é uma expressão que é esta the bridge", que te que te conecta e que as dois espaços, para a mão de tanto céu, malvez que um bocadinho de diferença te causa tudo o problema e, e que ali é uma forma de invita-lo uh, Esse livro "The Making of the Cave Virgin" era uma ideia, é um trabalho de um senhor uh, Manuel e Costa uh, Sinha E hoje nós ter um, um privilégio de falar com a filha também, que edita esse, esse livro ali, que é a senhora Ginny Amy Costa, um, sem mais cerimônia, nós trazer que na linha, uh, nós também nem inglês, e nós temos que fazer um uh, episódio importante, de... nós temos sempre, mas tudo que nós é importante, mas que ali é um curso prático que... Não está a aplicar no dia a dia De de nossa vida Portanto, é, 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 é boas informações para entendimento Para saber quem é nós como um povo E também é, coisas que não, te, que, que não pode Começar a te entender de nosso cabeça um bocadinho melhor Portanto, estou trazendo a senhora Jenny Costa na linha Não está a falar com ela Para não te, máximo possível Nas próximas horas uh, para pa, um, pa não pôr e aproveitar máximo e depois uh, um, também deu um resumo e interfeira tudo pessoas The making of the Caverian é, um, é um livro que deve estar na tudo casa Calverdianos mas tudo casa Calverdianos deve ter e senhor se nós continuamos esse programa ali me também entendi para mori quinta interfeira hello Miss Costa
0: Yes, hi, good morning. Uh, is it good morning or good afternoon yet? I'm thinking it's good morning, yes. How are you today, Lewis? <laughs>
1: it's good morning. I'm doing well. So this well. is going to be interesting asking.
0: because you're speaking in Creole, and my Creole is very limited. So how are we going to do this? No,
1: uh, okay, so I did an introduction in Creole, and precisely okay. I was explaining to folks that, um, you know, the opportunity is so great, the information is so great. That uh, unfortunately we we got to do it in 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 English. But the good thing is that a lot of the people that do listen to this program do understand English, and even Great. even in Cape Verde. So English is is slowly uh, uh, encroaching on Portuguese, <laughs> uh, okay. as um, you know, as, as a, a, a language that's really uh, spoken by a lot of Cape Verdes. Right. So without right. um, you know, without further ado, um, I did a, a quick introduction about this book, and um, it, it's my feeling, it's my feeling that this is a book that needs to be in every Cave verdian household. I, I really do believe this. That's the reason why I've really um, uh, made a good effort to, to, to speak with you and convince you to take a, a little bit of your time to share with us because uh, I really believe that what your dad did Mr. Costa Senior, Manuel Costa Senior, uh, I think he 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 did something that's so logical, it's so simple, but yet no one thought of doing it, uh, right. which is to write a book like this. So I, I think he left us a, a wonderful gift, and I want to do my part to hopefully, um, you know, strike the an interest and bring it to to people's consciousness. Uh, this why this book is so important. So hopefully today, you're gonna help us uh, a little bit without getting into too much detail, uh, right? Okay. About about this book. So so I could help promote it a little bit better because I think as a people, if we if we if we have the knowledge, uh, we're gonna start doing much better for ourselves, and we're gonna start doing much better for each other.
0: So, right. That's well, first goal. of all, let me thank you for that, because I think I know that was my father's intent when he started to take his notes and write this and began to write it like in the 1950s, maybe late 40s, and because he knew that it was important for people to know what was going on, what we did since the time we got here in New Bedford and what happened to us, because it's, we always need to have a base for where we came from. Aside from, yes, we came from Cabo Verde, and, but what happened when people, when we as Cape Verdeans arrived here in the United States? So with that yes. said, I want to say that, yes, it's important. I do promote the book. I don't, I'm not out there on a soapbox trying to promote it. It promotes itself because once people read what's in it and understand the importance of knowing from whence we came, they get to understand the value, and yes, it should be in every in every k home. I truly believe that.
1: Um, so, uh, to start, can you just give us a just a quick background about uh, your dad, Mr. Uh, Manuel Costa Sr.? Uh, just a quick background about him, because obviously he's the he's the person that put this together and with your help uh, uh, towards the end and, and bringing it to life. But right. uh, you just give us a little bit of a background about him and also uh, transitioning to you as well. And then what I want to do is dive into the book a little bit and, and okay. you could just kind of give us a little bit of a, um, you know, synopsis if you will, about, about par- parts of the book. Obviously we, we can't do justice, so you have to read it. But hopefully right. we can touch on some things that I think are very interesting that will spark the, the interest of whoever listens to this.
0: Okay. Well, to start off, my father's people came from St. Anton and parts of uh, Santa Clara and San Vicente, but St. Anton was where he uh, his family came from. And um, and they came here in the early 1900s like many other Cape Verdeans. When they came to New Bedford, um, unfortunately during the times of it was close to the depression my grandparents moved to portchester new york for a little while and that's where my father got his education he was able he never missed a day of school i have the cards to prove that and from going to high school he was an a student he he played sports he got involved in everything he actually was able to attain uh, a high level of, of his grades And eventually ended up going the community came together to help my father to be able to afford because they saw his intelligence and they saw his his sportsmanship and and all the things that they felt that you know he could excel in so the community came together and got scholarship money for my father to go to college and the first college he attended was Lincoln University Uh, he didn't stay at Lincoln because of unfortunately he couldn't afford it after a while but eventually he went to Brown University, and then eventually graduated from your alma mater, Bridgewater State University. Um, he was an activist. He was a teacher. He had his license to be a mortician. He had um, he he was the one that was here in New Bedford, alongside of after his other elders, like people like uh, Lawyer Gomes, who were trying to make it possible for other youth and other people, other women and young men, to be able to go to college, be able to afford to go to college. And he used to do scholarship drives and things like that, especially at the park where they used to have basketball games and he would pass around the hat. He was so active in this community that they named the street after him, which is right near the uh, the uh, Monty's Playground, which was named after another great Cape who died in the war. And um, many accolades have come through to my father for all the work he did uh in this new bedford for his people and for others and one of the things i um, i will always say this one of the administrators here in new bedford years ago said what my father did back then would take four to five people to do today so with all that said i mean he accomplished so much here in new bedford helping our Cape Verdean people out when they didn't have representation in the courts he used to go and sit in the court he knew the judges He would vouch for people. He would go to housing, making sure people got housing. He would go to the schools, making sure these kids were getting educated or speak up for the kids that weren't getting educated. Every aspect of human life that pertained to being able to move forward, my father was involved here in New Bedford trying to help his people out. And again, not just the Cape Verdeans, but the main focus was on Cape Verdeans because we were at the bottom of the ladder during those early years. And in some cases, we uh, still remain there for quite some time. So, um, you know, he was a teacher as well. Uh, he because, like I said, he graduated from Bridgewater State College and he became a teacher and, and he taught in the New Bedford, uh, New Bedford school system. Uh, he was a social worker. Uh, he just went the gamut when it came to being involved in New Bedford and all the things. He created the foster grandparent program here in New Bedford. Um, there's just so many things I could go on and on and on but that's the gist of who this man was and up until the day he died he was still even during the times of struggle for Cape Verde independence he used to write letters to the senators here and write letters back and forth to even uh, uh, Aristides Pereira all of that going back and forth trying to help and fight for the independence sending money to Cape Verde sending clothing to Cape Verde he did all this during that time and that's a lot of what he documented in this book. So I think that kind of gives you a basis of all the things that, not all the things, but a lot of what he did here in New Bedford. Yeah,
1: that, that's truly amazing. That's truly amazing. And uh, I feel indebted uh, to, to your dad for the, for the work he did, although, you know, I'm a much later generation, but he certainly paved the road. And I, I have a lot, a lot of respect for not only him, but, you know, that community in
0: uh Of course. In, in New there was Bedford, a lot of people here in New Bedford that came forward at the time and they established different organizations and um, able to, like, you know, just when you think about the uh, Cape Verde Marine and Band Club, is that was started so that they could pass along uh, the music and, and teach the youth how to use instruments or uh, play instruments. There was a lot of different organizations here in New Bedford, and we all tried to uplift one another for the most part. And besides, even though it was a struggle, because, of course, the racism that people of color were facing here in the United States applied to the Cape Verdeans as well. So there was, there was struggle. Even though they came here away from Salazar and away from everything that happened in Cape Verde, here in the United States they were still struggling like any other person of color.
1: Absolutely. Now I'm looking at the book. The book starts out, the reason why I think it's so important is because obviously you're not going to read this book and become an expert, but what it does is that it makes you a very well-rounded person as far as knowledge and understanding, and it gives you the foundation to go dig into any chapter that you want, and obviously uh, you will have a strong foundation from reading this book. I think this book is so great because it gives you the foundation where you could go and tackle any specific areas. Obviously, a lot of these areas, there hasn't been a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of work, cool. work done in details, which, which is which is good in a way because it leaves opportunity for someone to, to pick up. So this book starts out, first of all, with the historical background of K. Verde, um, and then it goes island by island. He even uh uh touches on a little bit on the 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 Ilios, which you know obviously there 's no people there, but right. it gives us, it gives us a, a quick understanding of those islands, which is phenomenal um, He touches on the education marriage in, in Cape Verde, but I would like to pick up um on the immigration because talking about you know that relationship with u s specifically New England. And in uh, and the islands, um, I, w- I would like to pick up there on that chapter where it talks about the uh, immigration to to the United States. Can you give us just a quick, uh, more or less, just a quick um, uh, talk on that? Um, because a lot of people really, you know, let me just let me just take uh, digress a little bit. Like we will go right now, and I understand the frustration. You know, maybe the flight's a little bit uh, late and this and that, but I mean. The stuff that the people had to put up with during that that time in the immigration i mean that that is i don't know if we if my generation or the people today actually have the i don't know if we have the 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 temperament or if we have the ability to withstand that that type of oh, uh, right uh, well, you know in, I'll you know, give... voyage.
0: I'll, I'll, let me share with you one little story. It's a woman in fact, I, I have her on one of my documentaries and she was 98 making Morge de depressed because that's the other thing I do. I'm trying to capture the history in, in documentaries. This woman, Alice Mendes, talked about her mother's trip coming from Cape Verde, and she was six months pregnant, forty five days on that water. Can you imagine that? And she stayed, wow. as she referred to it, down in the hole. For most of that trip because she was so sick and when you talk about a tenacious people people that were destined they knew that they had to leave Cave Red because there was nothing there uh, even before uh, the independence there was no support system there other than what people from here were sending back there so people were trying their best to get on any boat that they could and if you've seen some of the photos of some of them, you know it's almost like coming into New Bedford or seeing Ellis Island in New York. But they did come into New Bedford and Rhode Island. But to, when you hear some of the stories and some of the people, of course we know that left the Cape Cod Islands never got here because some of the boats were in such uh, disrepair they they just weren't sea uh, they weren't seaworthy, and uh, there was a lot of tragedy. But for the ones that did make it, I myself don't know how they did it. But, you know, it's just like us struggling through my age group, struggling through the 60s, struggling through, you know, the civil rights movement and all that. We say we don't know how we made it, how we got through that without getting killed and all that. It's the same kind of attitude. Those people came from Cape Verde. They they just wanted to do it. They wanted to leave there. They wanted a better life. So that's what gives you that hope and that strength to get on those boats. And even if you have 45 days, can you imagine hardly any food? they going to being able to clean themselves. I mean, it's just, it's just uh, unbelievable for, like I said, for what they, what they had to endure during that time.
1: Uh, Ms. Costa, that's the, this is one of the things that I think um, if the people, if, especially if the youth today, have a, a understanding of what maybe their great grandparents went through because we're, we're just we're just a continuation of that if we understand that especially let's say the, the folks right now in New Bedford, if they know look my great grandmother my great grandfather took this chance, put his life on the line literally to come here to make sure that the next generation had a better opportunity. It's, to me, I look at life almost like a re- relay race. You know, if, when you get the baton, you've got to, you know, you cannot play around
0: and because that, the struggle and of what, what
1: the first runner did, you've got to catch that momentum, make up, or don't, at least don't make it worse. But I think right. this is the part. We're missing that information.
0: And, you know, I have to say this. Many of our people did that, you know, and unfortunately, we, the focus wasn't on education when they first came here. The focus was on their work ethic. Let's all of us work, put our money together. Let's do whatever we can to survive here, to build our little homes, to get land, to purchase land. This was the focus back then, and they were able to bring families here. You know, here in New Bedford, that same woman I referred to, Alice Mendes, her mother used to have a house down near Johnny K. Kill, which is where the, uh, the museum, the New Bedford, uh, the Whaling Museum is today. They had a home there down the street further where when people came off the boat, they would look for like Maria Baba or Bacha or this one or that one to, so that they knew that there was a place in that house for them. This is what we did. We were able to bring families over here to house them, to feed them, help them to get on their feet. And that still happened up until, I mean, this has been going on still, I believe, in most of the Cape Verdean communities, especially for the immigrants, the newer immigrants coming over. But so true. A lot of the young folks who, and I see it all the time, they're more worried about their Jordan sneakers than to worry about helping out other cave readings or getting their education or making sure that they're doing the right thing other than being involved in the things that when they became very Americanized and not focusing on getting higher education or getting education and making their ancestors proud of the fact that, listen, we struggled to get over here. We fought when we was in Cape Verde for independence. These are all the things we did, and we brought you to this country. You were born here, yes, but we came here deliberately so that you could have a better life. And some of the youth, not all, some of the youth don't get that, but I'm still so proud of a lot of our youth who have come over here, even coming now, and attending school and graduating and doing all these wonderful things. But there's still, unfortunately, that... Some of the kids, some of the young folks, they don't see the value in passing that baton, as you say.
1: Um, I want to, as far as the the immigration, I'm going to say something, and then I want you to correct me or expound on it. From my understanding is that initially it started with the whaling ships uh, stopping by the islands and picking up very courageous young uh, men, to look that that were looking for an opportunity uh not just to come here but to make to to make a living to to help back uh, help out the the folks back then and then after the the the, the end of that industry of the whaling, some Cape Verdeans bought those ships converted it into more like a passenger ships and started going back and really it, it ended up bringing a lot of Cape Verde here. I think until, what, uh, 1919 or something like that, that they changed the immigration law. They made it a little bit more. I think that they got word of how these, uh, what they used to maybe refer to as black Portuguese or or black, because usually most of the immigrants were coming from uh, Southern Europe and Ireland and so forth. But then maybe they got word that some of these non-white immigrants are coming in in a good flow. They sure. uh, might have motivated them to to change that uh, uh that law that made it a little bit more difficult can you can you touch on that just so people can understand the the inception of the immigration of Cape Bernia specifically as a unique people unique group in this
0: country because really we don't we don't talk about the uniqueness of immigration and Cape Verdean people well you know from uh, my from growing up, one of the things that I knew is that, and we would always say this, Cape Verdeans were the one black group that didn't come via slave ships. And what happened was, because they were great seamen, that, yes, the whaling ships had stopped along those islands, and a lot of these men proved that they could be good uh, a whale men or Boat hands or whatever And that's, that is actually how Most of them came here to the United States Unfortunately like you said It was almost when the, Towards the 1920s It was almost the end of the whaling And it was uh, Going into depression uh, You know the 1920s depression Here in the United States So but they still Had these skills and they were still able To there was a few and I think if you, I don't know off the top of my head, a lot of these different um, captains, but we did have some of our Cape Verde men who were able to purchase these ships, these packet ships, and travel back and forth to Cape Verde. But again, as you said, the laws changed, and just like we, that guy up there in the, on Pennsylvania Avenue is doing today, your dark skin, we don't need you here, or they're going to make it harder for you to get here. So that happened back then as well. But once they got here and they were able to settle in the New Bedford area, because of their, you know, skills as fishermen, they got involved in the fishing industry. They got involved in the cranberry bogs, as you know, uh, and other labor laborious type of work. But uh, many of them were very skilled, uh, you know, like I said, skilled men when it came to uh, working on these various boats and again, working with these captains to go back and forth on the pack of chips and bringing people here. I'm not as up on the whole immigration law and whatever, but I think once you speak with Marilyn Halter, who's a dear friend of mine, she did more research on that. But that's what I can give you at this time.
1: Um, one thing that I, I really enjoyed in the book, I mean, obviously, that was it was more like, uh, when your dad got into the storytelling, like when he started uh-huh. talking about uh, the situations with the stevedores, I mean, I I couldn't I couldn't stop reading that that section. And then when he started getting them in, in, into some of the stories about the children, the playing the dozens, which was, a yeah. lot, and I started seeing a lot of similarities between. And I don't know if it was something that Kate Vernon just had as well, but the so-called Black Native Black uh, American community. I saw a lot of similarities, but there was also at the time there was um, you know uh, the, the 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 Black Americans or the what we would call today African Americans. They also lived in New Bedford. Can you talk a little bit about what was the relationship at the time of the, this new unique people coming in? And then New Bedford being such a densely populated city where you have the whites, the, the African-American uh, uh, folks, then you have the Portuguese, another dynamic, the, 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 the white Portuguese from Azores, my data, and maybe the mainland. I mean, I find that very unique for a city that's not a big city in a landmass. But you have all these people crammed up in the city, densely populated, and there's a lot of uniqueness the Portuguese don't want to accept the. They don't want to accept the que Verdes into none of their uh, social uh, clubs and the social uh, uh, affairs that they have. Then you had a little bit of a, some friction with them because of some differences with the uh, African American, and then you had the whites at the top. I mean, can you just talk about that dynamic? Yeah. I found that to be oh, very, that, very, very interesting.
0: That is a very that that has been a very touchy story, situation for many years, and I will touch on that. First of all, when the Cape Verdeans came here, and honestly, I I understand it, but it's still not saying it was right, they did not want to assimilate with the, as they were told back then, the um, uh, Negroes or the colored people, because they felt if they assimilated or associated more with the Portuguese, that they would be able to get ahead quicker, Okay, because they wouldn't be looked on. And that's why they used their language. That's why they made sure, because they wanted to show that difference. But in saying that, the African Americans, who we later, you know, termed instead of using the word Negro in color, that lived in the western part of the city, and there was that fine line. You, south end was New Bedford Cape and the west end was basically uh, African Americans, West Indians, and, and uh, what have you. And what's ironic about that is because the African-Americans in the West End really didn't want to associate with the Cape Verdeans in the South End because they, thought they they actually felt that they were ignorant because most of them were uneducated because, again, we didn't focus so much on education. We focused on getting jobs and working and trying to help our people still in Cape Verde or what have you. But... The African-Americans, the Cape Verdeans, didn't want their kids associating with the African-Americans, even when they went to school. You come home, you don't bother with that. You don't go up to West End. And this eventually even got to a point where when we were having our little gangs in New Bedford about 10, 15 years ago when the situation started coming out, and you were having these little fights because there's always been that little war, South end and West end. even though it got better throughout the years. But then it still was uh, kind of like a, an issue, you know, not that we really spoke about. Some did. But we had already started intermarrying and, and doing affairs together and associating together. But even when those little gang wars started, there was a point where one kid shot another kid and didn't even realize that they were family because they knew it was West End wow. and South End. So that's to the extreme. But in saying that, a lot of the families, again, white the Portuguese did not really want us in their clubs. And even further than that, you had the, the – and this is one that always bothered me because I have many friends are from Brava, but we knew it for a fact that the Bravas, a lot of them were lighter skinned, did not want other dark skinned people, and this goes way back in their clubs. They didn't want to associate wow. with them. And I know a good friend of mine who I have on one of my documentaries, Ray Almade. He talks about being in New York, in Manhattan. I think it was, Ma- it was Manhattan, uh, a Brooklyn, whatever the place was, that there was a, it was a club that was strictly for Bravas. Now, his grandfather was Brava, but he was darker skinned. And so when his grandfather Mm -hmm. went to the club with him, knocked on the door, they said, oh, no, no, you can't come in. And he tried to explain, this is my name, I'm Bravo. Oh, no, 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 you can't come in. And the grandfather was upset, but he didn't show that to his grandson. And later on, his grandson asked him, why wouldn't they let us in? He said, they don't know any better. That's it. And that's how he left it. And this is a person that, I mean, that is prominent in our community. But these are the things that happened. We had division between the West End and the South End. We had division between the Portuguese that didn't want us really to be associated. Unless you were very light-skinned, still yet they didn't treat you like you was better. Although, we were, later on, I mean, it came to a time in the 30s, 40s, where we were more educated than a lot of those Portuguese that wouldn't accept us. And then you had your own groups from the different islands with all this divisiveness and, and it was so crazy because the city, there was one time when a lot of our Cape uh, Verdean women worked at this particular uh, factory, and when they filled out their applications, they filled out that they were white. So when they, let, when they had a layoff and they laid off all these people and they cried discrimination, they said, how can you describe a cry discrimination when on your application it says white? So there was a lot of things that happened that people put themselves in these situations instead of uniting, which eventually did begin to happen. But at one point, because the city administrations knew here, too, that if they kept us divided, it was less powerful for us to come together and be able to, like, uh, uh, get different people in on city council, which my father ran twice, almost one, but that was their tact. To keep us separated. They told the West Indians, or the people in the West, End, they were better than us, and they told us in the South End that we're better than them, and that's how they kept us separated. And that's why, for many years, until we were able to actually come together, is why we couldn't get anybody into the city administration, which now, finally, yes, we have a few, but it should have been, that should have happened a long time ago. But those are the things that have happened, just because of one group thinking that they're better, or one not accepting. Or So on and so forth. It's, it's always been crazy. And again, too, the, the lightness of the skin, the color of the eyes, the texture of the hair. When they used to talk that dumb stuff about good hair, bad hair, which is bizarre, it's crazy. I even wrote in another book that I wrote about and talked about there's no such thing as bad hair. Bad hair is hair that is not kept well. I really, that bothers me to this day when you look at her, look at Oh, look at that child. She's so pretty. She's got light eyes and light hair and good hair. It just keeps, you know, it's just things that are uh, inappropriate, things that try to keep a group down, and it's unfair because you have so many great people out there, so many intelligent kids that, you know, the more that we praise them, the more that they're going to, uh, you know, feel better about themselves and to be able to excel in their life instead of trying to keep people down. But that's, if you ever read the book by Willie Lynch and how he was able to help the South to keep people separated, he taught specifically about that. You put the tall against the short, the dark against the light, the this against the that, and that's how you keep them enslaved mentally as well as physically. So that's my point on that.
1: Yes. Oh, thank you so much for expounding um, on that. And I think, I think that this thing deserves, it really deserves uh, an in-depth study. Hopefully someone uh, could pick up on it because I'm talking specifically um, in New Bedford because I think New Bedford it, it is really, you could take New Bedford's history with the dynamic of different groups of folks and that segregation and uh, the racism, and you can literally apply it to the country. But if you could do an in-depth microcosm study of New Bedford, with the, sure. the long and deep history, uh, I mean, you could really uh, stop pulling the, the, peeling the onion layer by layer, and maybe we could get into some real solutions. But I find that to be very, uh, uh, very well, interesting. That's uh, why uh,
0: my too. father called the book "The Making of the Cape Verde," because it's all of these various pieces of life and, and struggle that made us who we are, you know, whether we became uh, doctors or, or lawyers, and we have plenty of those, and whether we became artists or whatever, it's all part of who we, how we grew up in this environment or a lot of throughout the diaspora, you know, all the things that were important to our becoming who we are today, many of the youth as well.
1: Uh, absolutely i want to i want to transition briefly uh, and obviously i mean uh, you've got to read the book i mean people you got you need to read this book i mean this book is that important in my point of view um so uh, you know i don't want to get too you know just get too crazy out there but i mean if you got a bible in every in every home you need to have this book because this the only way you're going to start knowing and understanding the makeup, like, really, as as the title says, the make the making of the Cape Verdean. Uh, and, Louis,
0: but... let me just say this, because when I did the book signing, the second book signing, the first book signing I did was here in New Bedford, and we did when we had uh, Hello, Cape Verde here. The second one I did was my dear friend, Victor Borges, who was the former minister of culture and the former minister of economy. Yes. He arranged for me mm-hmm. to do this book signing uh, in uh, Praia. And uh, with another group, and when the prime minister attended, the national news asked him, well, what is, why would you come to this book signing, To this? Uh, it's a book signing. He said, because this is a very, mm-hmm. very important book. And President Pius, when he came here and he was doing a presentation at the Hassan Country Club when they had him here, he was supposed to be doing a 20-minute presentation. He spent 15 minutes talking about this book. And like the new president, President uh, uh, George uh, Fonseca, one of the things that he said at the U.N. recently, he said, we don't have many resources in our country. We don't have diamonds and gold and all that. What we have is our people. And all of these, President Pius, President Fonseca, the prime minister and all these others, they see the importance of this book. Like I said, I'm not out there trying to sell a book. What's important in what's involved on those pages is part of our history, and that's why I was so determined to get this book published. When I asked a local uh, publishing company here, and I, I worked on them, please, you've got to publish this book. Help me publish this book. And they said, well, we'll take a couple of chapters, and we'll put it somewhere. I said, no, you won't. We are going to post the book because my father spent years documenting stuff that is very important to us. But, see, that's what they do. They kind of water down our stuff, and they just think, well, yeah, that's fine. We'll take a few words or chapters here. No, you, this whole book was important to our people. It may not be a scholarly book, but it is, and it talks about who we are and how we got to be. Even with the little nuances and the little funny stories, that's all who we are. That's part of our culture, our food, our music. Oh, I love those. Our food, that things, part, everything. I love so
1: that. Those, that. Those those stories right there was uh, it was. Uh, I, I'm, t- I'm telling you, once you start reading the those nuances, the 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 story of the the, the people in New Bedford. I mean, you can't stay because it 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 pulls you in like almost you're part of it. And I like the way, the the style of the writing, because it's very simple. It's not trying to beat you over the head. Um, right. It's just, it just like almost like storytelling.
0: That was deliberate right. on my because father's part. My father always said that. You don't try to speak over somebody's head. You want people to, if you right. want to draw, draw them in, you speak on a level that everyone can understand. Right. So that was very right. important. Now, I want to okay.
1: transition... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I, I want to transition into uh, another part that I found. I, I found it interesting. I, I actually enjoyed that chapter, which is um, our Country Cousins. Uh, I knew you were going to talk about, about that. About, so <laughs> so there <it> was a <laughs> distinction. And I found that really because it was the first time I heard that, the very first time. And I'm telling you, I, I really, I think my only difference, I, I believe I'm a, I have a lot of curiosity and, uh-huh. and that's the only thing that I think that, that's kind of really unique about me uh, is the curiosity. I don't think I'm – because a lot of times I tell people stuff, they go, oh, you're very intelligent. I'm like, nah, trust me. I'm not that that special. I don't have any special talent that I think of, but I do believe I have the curiosity. But even though with the curiosity, I had no idea about that dynamic between the, uh, the people. I understood the community, uh, a little bit of the community of New Bedford. Uh, But the book really helped me get a better understanding and appreciation. But can you touch on a little bit on that uh, chapter, Our Country Cousins, which is the distinction between the community, converting community, converting American community in New Bedford, and the Cape,
0: starting from uh, Wareham, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, one of the things I have to say, too, is – and I want to jump right into this part – is that when my father talks about the shanties and he talks about, you know, how they lived and everything, understanding that when these people were able to get a little shanty or something in the Cape and, and build around that, that was huge for them because they knew they had a little plot of land to farm, and that's what they knew. Okay, we had the city ones that wanted to go work in the factories and they did whatever, but many of the people, the country cousins, I've spoke to uh, quite a few growing up, and it was a big deal to come into New Bedford. You know, they would dress up and come in and do shopping and everything. But the value of them being there on the Cape was that eventually many of them were able to purchase more and more land, and they had beautiful homes later on in life. They had beautiful homes, and what were we? A lot of us here, what were we doing? Many of us had a lot of people had homes here, but not. We were mostly tenants in these. in in these apartment houses and and, and never was able to, being able to afford some of the homes here as opposed to some of our country cousins who worked that land and and was eventually able to purchase a lot of that land. And, and they were able to, they were able to uh, uh, from working the land and growing crops and doing all the things they did, they were able to sustain themselves in that way. And I admired A lot of the family. when I go back and look now and I see that some of them, their homes are beautiful, the amount of land that they had, a lot of that, unfortunately, too, because when the other folks came in and they started seeing people owning all this stuff and they wanted to do development, they started throwing money at them, okay? Many of these families end up selling some of that land and uh, for the sake of being able to maybe have enough money to send their child or their grandchild to college, so that's understandable. Here in New Bedford, where people, the ones that were able to purchase homes, what happened to them? A lot of them in the South End, uh, with with the urban renewal coming in in the 60s, and, you know, that whole thing with eminent domain, they came in, and there's a picture, when I was doing some research on what was happening in the South End, and there's a picture of a family being handed a check for their house that they struggled to purchase because it was hard to buy a house in New Bedford as opposed to owning land down at the Cape. There is that difference. And they, you, if you saw the faces on this, well, the, face, the expression on, on this gentleman's face, and I won't name the family, but if you saw the face, you could see the sadness that he worked all his life to get this home. And then when Urban Renewal came in, it's like either we're going to take it or you're going to accept this check. So getting back to the country cousins, a lot of them still, like I said, the education wasn't important at the time because they were still trying to develop their homes and create and do whatever, and then finally, eventually, a lot of their kids did end up going to college or, you know, get, getting higher education. So my family, I remember my father used to drive his station wagon. My grandparents, I picked cranberries myself as a little kid. I thought it was kind of fun, but I'm talking about with the, with the, when we had to use the scoops And my father had a station wagon. We used to ride around selling candy and drinks and even beer to the people working on the bars. And my grandfather and grandma, well, my grandma had passed away, but my grandfather had one of those little shanties there. And it was like bunk beds in all these rooms, and that's where you stayed. And sometimes a lot of kids were pulled out of school in September because that's when the season was starting. So embracing our country cousins, a lot of it, I mean, it was fun to go to the country and be with them, but we kind of would tease them like, you know, you're really country and we're really city, but we weren't really that much different. But that's kind of like my take on that whole country, and there's more to read in the book, you know, and people have a better understanding of that.
1: I mean, that's very interesting because my, my uh, understanding um, until recently, you know, Uh, My understanding, and I've been in this country for 30 years, but my understanding was when you spoke of the CAPE, you spoke primarily of uh, well-to-do, affluent uh, white people. And to to then later find out that Cape Verdean people also was a very uh, integral part of CAPE, of the CAPE. Um, right and the history of that. I mean, even going to to the islands. I mean, Martha's Vineyard and so forth. Absolutely. You know, obviously there were uh, black people, the African uh, Native blacks. I I, I don't. I, I personally don't like the term African American, but. Uh, but they like the, the, the African
0: Americans prefer that term all black or whatever. But. I know when I was growing up right. and I was part of that civil rights movement and I would start seeing I was black. I mean, you have seen the community, I mean, people say, you're yeah, not supposed to say that. Don't say that. You know, and I said, this is who I am. And I took on that whole role because I sat in the sit-ins in the South and I was able to be a part of both sides. So that didn't bother me. But anyhow, right. getting back to your point, um, yes. Yes, even yes. on Moss's Vineyard. A lot of, there was Cape Verdeans there, like Dr. Bala, who had this beautiful house right there on, on Ocean Drive, and uh, Dr. Bala, uh, and there was a couple of other Cape Verdeans that owned property there. And the same thing happened down in the Oak Bluff area. A lot of these people of color worked for the more affluent people at Edgartown, and in Antarctica, but at Edgartown, part of uh, Martha's Vineyard, and they started purchasing land in Oak Bluffs. Many of them still own that land, but a lot of them sold out like anything else. They come through. The wealthy white developers come through, listen, we'll give you this amount of money. And sometimes it's because it's the next generation. They're not getting jobs or it's a tough time. They sell the property. That's what happens all the time. We know that. Gentrification, we know all about that. So... Again, you know, yes, a lot of Cape Verdeans were on the vineyard. They were on the Cape, and they worked with very affluent families. And if you're, and I hate using this term, but if you're like a nice colored person, some of those people would have brought you in and and maybe helped you out a little bit more than if you wasn't like an angry black person because of everything that we had going against us. I was probably one of those people, they they were never given land to because I was not always angry, but I used to say pretty upset with what things that I knew was going on in this country. And uh, I was my father's daughter. I did not sit well and be just quiet about things. So, yeah, they would have never did anything for me like that in a way. But I'm just throwing that out there to be funny. I
1: mean, uh, we can't do justice to the book. Really, we cannot do justice to the book. Me personally, I mean, I'm going to tell you – um, but before I transition Is there a place where people could buy this book In bulk because to me um, If I'm going to give somebody Gifts now on family members and stuff Like that I'll give them this book Because you know well, what I, I was just thinking about it I have a yeah I'm sorry go ahead
0: What I did Louis like I've done For a couple other friends is that I would I, I'll get it At my rate And um, you mm-hmm. can go to Amazon Or you can go I mean Amazon. That's kind of where I got mine Okay, but if it was, say, a school or if it was an organization, I have no problems with buying it. I mean, I would buy it for them to get that rate. Right. So I would do that. If it's an organization something like that, but I can't always continue to lose money and just keep offering it at a at a cheaper rate, then I get nothing in, in return. Oh,
1: no. I mean, this – I mean – as you mentioned initially with the sneakers, I mean, I find it amazing. A lot of times um, I do some work with the public schools as a contractor. I walk in, I see these these young students with a $100, $200 pair of sneakers. I mean, oh, yeah. can you imagine the information in this book and what it could do by sparking the mind of some of these uh, young people and the talent that they have uh, right now that needs to be awakened? I mean, this is um, – a uh, e- listen, everybody, every parent can afford this. There's no reason uh, to, to do any charitable. There's no no reason to do any charitable work because these parents are, uh, are spending, whether they have it or they don't have it, they find their ways to buy $200 pair of sneakers for their children to put on right. their feet. This is something well, that goes in your mind that, that, inter- that could do this, tremendous things.
0: Let me interject this. When I went to... Cape Verde also, I went and visited for the first time in saint Anton where my father's people came from. And I went to the school there. And it was ironic because it was an eerie thing when I was able to go to school. I, I couldn't even speak. I cried. I-, I just cried. And and these kids were just so sweet. And they were even hanging through the windows to hear me speak and everything. And they had a translator there. And they're telling me, no children, no children, like this. Right? Because I was so emotional. I left a box of books there, and one of the things that was asked was, uh, could I ever get the book translated? And I did try. It's very, very expensive, and I just didn't have the funds. And I have to say, BCA, the bank of the the BCA Bank in Verde was the one that really funded that book for me. I met with the president; he funded me getting that book published. And so I made sure when I went to Cape Verde I bought enough books for the BCA Bank and for the students of the school. And I made nothing from it. I wasn't trying to make money off the book. I wanted to do what my father wanted was to get this information out there. And that was basically what I did. And I wish that I could have been able to translate this book into Creole or Portuguese or whatever the language is that people mostly speak and understand now in Verde
1: yeah I mean it's amazing uh I think I don't know I think a lot of the things are sim- the similarities with 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 people. It's very, very similar to me, the more information I get, the more humble I become, the more you know understanding I become of things and um, and, and also the clearer I, I I see things. It seems like the more ignorant I was, <laughs> the more shallow, the more uh materialistic. Um, once you start grabbing information and you start understanding that there may be a purpose beyond, you know, <laughs> showing off or, or what have you. So I think this is really the medication, if you will. This is the prescription that a lot of our people need so they could become more uh, understanding and and show more solidarity with each other of, of other right And, and, and let me just say this
0: too, Louis, because I understand the next generation when we were able to buy or when they were able to buy their children more things and everything, and it was a sign of, you know, wealth, like, look, we've made it. I, and that's a, a being proud. I get that. I understand. But at some point you have to draw that line and say, look, we have to, step back here and understand that we're still a struggling people and we still need to know where we came from and what is the purpose here?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I, just because, you know, our time, I want to be very respectful of your time. I, I, this, we could go on forever talking about this, but uh, people, you gotta get this book. You need, I can't say it enough. As a people, I know k people tend to be pretty proud um, of the heritage or uh, as a people, but uh, we need to get this book. This book is going to really, really put the foundation on many things. But transitioning into this, uh, there is a chapter that I think is also very, very important. Uh, it's the chapter of, um, I believe it's called The Well-To-Do uh yeah. verdians yeah. Uh, and, and and I want to transition. Uh, I want to I want to transition to that because a lot of times we it's important for us to see and know of people with very similar backgrounds. Sometimes family members that uh, have come through more difficult uh, experiences and been able to really get great success. And a lot of times they they don't have any special talent uh, per se, something out of the ordinary. We may have someone with a dormant talent, dormant um, ambition that needs to be uh, awakened, uh, that could achieve a lot of what these people did. But we have some really great, great – I mean, that chapter alone could be expounded as a book because, I mean, you could go into biographies. Can you touch a little bit on that chapter? And then what I want to do is – name a couple of names um and if you could just give us a little opinion on that and i think from there we could really transition into concluding uh just so i won't take more of your time but i think if we don't touch on this chapter uh we don't do the justice um of what that chapter was in the book because it's towards the end of the book but um I found that very – this is where a lot of good information came in and a lot of inspiration based on these uh, these people that, uh, that your dad uh, highlighted.
0: Right. Well, one of the things, like I say, you know, our people were very tenacious, and for those that were given a certain opportunities or were able to um, – if you look in the back of the book, too, I have a list of – a lot of the businesses that Cape Verdean started in New Bedford, so many of them were able to succeed, and that way they started small businesses and were able to rise above the poverty that a lot of, a lot of our people and people of color in New Bedford was experiencing. So they had different people, like um, Judge, there was one judge mine who owned um, uh, a funeral parlor, you had um, the the other family. Uh, there was a couple of cave Verdeans who had funeral parlors. Then you had other people who owned barber shops, owned stores, and using you know being able to be smart to invest their money and to um, work at you know jobs that you know when they saved their money they were able to have good knowledge and good input from people that they associated with so that they could rise. Above the the situations that we were having because it has not been too long ago when there We didn't have what we had and I'm talking like maybe 30 years ago. It was still a point of where uh, Most of our people are still struggling. There's still people struggling today, but I'm saying in terms of being able to rise to prominence um, a lot of that was through like I said a lot of hard work a lot of uh, intermingling a lot of making connections and eventually I think that uh, you know it was like these different organizations that associated themselves with other groups that were in the know and showed some of our people how to get to the next level, how to purchase land, how to start a business. No one getting involved in politics because that was key too because there was a lot of obstacles and barriers. So if you didn't know somebody sometimes He wasn't going to get a license to do X, Y, and Z, or to build, or to be able to go to mortician school, which, in fact, that's another thing my father did and got his license. So there was that well-to-do, and a lot of times those well-to-do people did not want to associate with the not-so-well-to-do. And so there was that alienation there. They had their certain little groups, their little clubs, and they kind of, in a way, some of them looked down upon the distrodden uh, the downtrodden, I'm, I'm sorry. And unfortunately, that also caused that uh, division amongst a lot of the areas, a lot of the groups and where they lived. Some of them moved to Dartmouth, and they associated more with the with, uh, with uh, the Caucasians. And they didn't come to some of the Canadian affairs that, say, maybe the group of Fogos did. So there was a lot of that going on. So, and I think my father touches on that. I know he does when he says, like you know that that uh what they call the the three hundred club or whatever it was called back then that was a club of people who didn't associate with people who were still factory workers or maybe they were still domestics, so they did they there was that kind of discrimination amongst our people, and it's unfortunate. But I think later on, because as our kids became more educated and the families were able to show, see, we are just as good as you are, and a lot of that came to pass. And there's still maybe a little bit of that, but not as much as it used to be years ago. Um, I want to highlight a couple of people. I
1: I mean, I was going through the the names of these folks. It seemed to me that – I don't know if it was just the the folks – uh, the the people that your dad chose to highlight, but there was a uh, a lot of attorneys and doctors. Was oh, that yeah. like uh, specifically like a, a, a two occupations that was really deemed to be very prestigious or uh, something oh, that a lot of people aim for? Um, well, it was just a coincidence that he chose those people.
0: No, because there those were the higher. Uh, uh, positions that people, if you saw someone like Lawyer Gomes, you it was almost like God walking in the house sometimes. I mean, that's how people were wow. so impressed with that prestigiousness, you know. Like, oh, we've got lawyer Gomes was actually my father's mentor, one of his best mentors. And, um uh, when you had somebody, we're a talking about like,
1: a, attorney Alfred Alfred Gomes, right.
0: Greg Holmes, right, yes, that we have a school named after him here and other things as well. And Judge Layton, I mean these were people Judge that Layton, yes. you looked at so proudly and, and I'll tell you, a lot of one of the reasons why my father was able to rise to the level that he did is because first of all, he was a lieutenant he was one of the first K lieutenants in, you know, a Cape Verdean lieutenants around and so when he came out of the service and he came to New Bedford he was tall, he was intelligent, he just my He just, I have to say, he worked hard as a young kid and really studied hard, and he had that impressionable uh, way about him, and he had that presence with him, and people did listen, and so there were certain levels of professionalism that people looked upon as though, wow, I mean, this person is, it, again, it was like, I hate to say it, it was like Jesus Christ walking in hell sometimes, you know, when you saw... Uh, the attorneys or the doctors, and we didn't have that many doctors. But like Balmira Noon, she was a doctor of education, and a lot of people don't even know about her. And she's from down in Wayham, and somebody I I, I read about and I really strongly admired. We have <coughs> we have more today, many more in education or in health in medical in the medical field, and attorneys. My niece is an attorney. I mean, we're so proud of that. When you as we each generation. We see more and more of it, but back at those times, there was very few people, especially women, who were able to aspire to that level and become like attorneys or, you know, doctors or whatever, but we did have a few, and those are the ones that we were very proud of, and they would become the speaker if we had to have a spokesman someplace. They would be that person we go to, you know, And, and that's the way it was back at that time.
1: Uh, I want to I wanna highlight, uh, a, and you know I spoke to you about this, but it's someone, it's a person of um, a great interest to me. Uh, I look at him uh, more as, um, from my perspective, as a historical figure. And, um, and, and I believe, this is just my impression, that a majority, unless you're from New Bedford <clears throat> and you are of at least, let me just be real. My impression is that if you're at least 40 years old or older, a lot of people may uh, may not know enough or know of uh, Sweet Daddy Grace, Bishop Grace, right. and the significance of his life and the impact that he made because to a lot of folks outside of the Cape Verdean people, uh, obviously he was looked at as a, um, as a, a black man. But – and they and they kind of – a lot of times I find you have people from different places, from the Caribbean, from the from Cape Verde, and a lot of them, when they reach certain prominence, they're automatically labeled as um, as uh, black – like Native blacks or so-called African Americans, descendants of slaves, or even – because I think a lot of black Americans are actually Native Americans. Um, it's all mixed. There's a lot of confusion. But a lot of I, – I got to know about them from – his ministry, and I don't know if we we could call him a businessman, but one of the books quoted him, it was based on history, that at the time, he was considered the wealthiest black man in the United States. And this is a a man that came from Brava, got off in uh, in New Bedford, had a a great impact in New Bedford, but his impact really exploded when he went to the Carolinas. Can you, because I want to do a a podcast on him, I want to highlight and, um, uh, and and this is a, a a historical figure, of great, great, great interest of, of mine, and a, a few other people that I know. And he's buried um, in New Bedford, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Right. Yes. Up the north end. Can um, you touch,
1: can you highlight a little bit about what um, uh, Bishop Sweet Daddy Grace, um, the impact that he had, and how the people in New Bedford really looked at him? Uh, Because I know your dad had an opinion uh, of how he, you know, what he thought, how the people really looked at him initially, uh, and then the explosion and the impact that this man had and the influence that he brought to to black people in in this country.
0: Right. Well, and I do know his family very well. And one of the things its so true, um, when Daddy Grace, and I remember him preaching as a little kid, Um, He would be on the corner preaching and uh, in the park and around New Bedford. And his first church in New Bedford was on Howland Street. I remember distinctly being in front of there. Everybody knew Daddy Grace was going to be in town. And um, we would stand outside and listen to the music. And then eventually he moved up to his first church on Kempton Street. Not the one that's there because that's the new one. That one's like facing... um, That one is on Kempton, but there was a smaller church there. Now, sadly, the Cape Verdeans here would just, they ridiculed him. They just laughed. I mean, they thought, who is this guy? He's just, you know, somebody just trying to preach the Bible and do all this, and and nobody really paid attention to it. It was the people of color, the African-Americans at the time, people from the Carolinas. Wherever he went, New York, he traveled Boston. That's where his following began, and— when I tell you following, these people just were, you know, so his family supported him because when his church, when he came to New Bedford, his family would be there in New Bedford, and he um, the church was always packed, okay? So it was, they say, you know, the poor blacks in the urban areas were drawn to his ministry. Um, and he was um, very, very... What do I want to say? Because you know, he had the long fingernails and and he painted them in different colors, like the flag and everything. So he was very charismatic. And they were the ones that really made this man this wealthy individual that he became. I remember a story of him coming to New Bedford, and there was a huge house up on County Street that they eventually tore down because they put a school there. Um, he walked into the bank downtown with, the, with his associate or whatever. And he told them he wanted to buy this house. They said, well, this house, is, this is how much money it is. He opened up the suitcase, and this money came out and paid it in cash. So, And then the homes that he built in Washington, D.C. and other places, he had many homes here in New Bedford. And that's when people started noticing, like, wow, this man really, really is becoming very wealthy behind his ministry and his followers. But still yet, the Cape Verdeans not necessarily were following him. He, these were people of color from the South and from where have you, what have you, that believed in this man and believed that, you know, he was this, more or less their Savior. So that is when, like I said, he started United House of Prayer for all people. I used to go because I used to enjoy the fact that this man was so, like I said, charismatic that You would just stand there and watch him with these long nails and the long hair, and he was very impressive. He was very impressive, and he did well by those people. I mean, he had he opened restaurants, he he had these housing complexes. He did a lot for those people that followed him, and still, again, the Kevurdians still didn't you know they ridiculed him, they didn't believe in his. But once he came back and he was starting to show that he had all of this wealth and everything. He gained a little bit more respect from his people eventually.
1: I I look, and again, I'm no expert, but I see a lot of similarities, um, not in ministry, but I think there's a lot of similarities. I don't know if the, any comparative studies have been done uh, between, um, uh, at the time, what he was doing uh, between him, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, right. and also... Um, um, noble Drew Ali. Um, I think a lot of the, 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 the things is because they incorporated economics uh, at the right. time. And, um, you know, and Sweet Daddy Grace, if I'm not mistaken, at one time, he bought uh, – when I say he, I'm talking about his ministry because I think he used to have a saying, I don't own anything, the, the church does –
0: um, right. yeah. Which
1: there's some truth to, to to that. But um Sweet Daddy Grace at one time uh from what I read, he was credited for having the mo the the most expensive apartment complex in Manhattan, uh in the United States. I mean out of everybody. I mean white and everything, and people were stunned that he had that level and I think it's because the, he incorporated that concept of group economics and keeping everything within, which is very similar to what the Honorable Elijah Muhammad did, because, um, right. you know, whether you believe or you, or you, whether you agree, you don't agree with their ministry and a lot of their opinions of how they, they're looking at things from a spirituality, um, economically, I mean, if you can't agree with that uh, as a people, uh, I mean, I, something's wrong because – if you can't, if you can't operate from an economic as a people, you're not going to grow. I mean, you're going to be scattered all over the place, and uh, maybe one or two could, could 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 go up, but as a group, uh, we're not going to uh, approach. So that's the that's my interest with Sweet Daddy Grace is that to understand how he was able to keep that. Maybe because of the segregation at the time, made it easier. With integration, things became uh, fluid and people got scattered. But I think that's um, that's my interest uh, in him because he became very, very wealthy.
0: Well, you know, and I will say this, New Bedford had never seen such a funeral as when Daddy Grace died in 1960. Um, to show you the impact that he had worldwide and, and then in this city is that I think his funeral the procession had to be at least a mile long. And that was the biggest funeral wow. they had ever seen in New Bedford at the, during that time. So it tells you a lot about how people eventually came around and knew the importance and the impact that he had on this country, especially in those cities where he was he had his ministries. I
1: mean, it's amazing. I, I've heard that. The influence he had on legends, in like uh, James Brown, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when he was a youth, uh, his mother used to take him to the church there in the Carolinas, because I think he was born in South Carolina. Uh, and then uh, he just influenced a lot of people, because he was a very flamboyant person. He, right. was, he used to dress well, uh, and a lot of entertainers took uh, on that, um, uh, emulated that image, and uh, and the way he... His approach, the way he would walk and the people around him, the entourage, uh, you know, it's something that the impact that he had culturally, not just in the United States, but then that culture being exported uh, globally. I mean, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud to know that uh, at some level I could be associated with someone like that because of our, uh, you know, families and the of where he came from I'm very very proud of the uh, of what he was able to accomplish and in fact there's a huge church um that they have in um, I think that would be considered right, right behind uh the um, uh Franklin Park Zoo <laughs> you know it's yes. a huge church beautiful church uh, right. right in the heart of like Roxbury Dorchester and uh, right there by uh, you know Blue Hills not too far from Blue Hills and and hopefully people could take interest and start looking at at him. I want to conclude also with uh, Attorney Alfred Gomes. You you did uh, point out to him. I believe uh, he's the one that they 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 uh, constructed a statue of him. Isn't is he the person I'm speaking of? Uh In no no he no, has
0: no that's a not him. Cool who, who was this, the gentleman? Uh, you're talking about the gentleman a, that also... Tommy Lopes. Tommy, oh, Tommy
1: him. Can, yeah. Can you touch a little bit on it? I'm not familiar too much with him, but I, I mean, I figured if they could, if the city could, you know, put a statue. I don't know if it was the city behind it, but it's they they did put a statue of him. Um, well, I it was, was actually uh, it was a group a that
0: came. It was a group that came together with his family, and this is for Tommy. Tommy took over the newspaper, and I can't remember the other gentleman's name that started it before, but Tommy worked years and years and years on this newspaper, and he went to every event. He went to every everything that you can think of. If you picked up that newspaper and you would see yourself, you said, how does this guy get around and do all this stuff? He published that paper. He edited that paper. He did everything for many, many years, and it was incredible to see that he was able to, like I said, to get to these events, I don't care if it was Boston, I don't care where it was, wherever there was Cape Verdeans, down the Cape, he was there capturing these stories. And I used to write for Tommy, too, for the newspaper, just because he couldn't be everywhere all the time. So I would write some articles here and there, and there were other people that contributed to the paper. But basically, he was the main person on that newspaper. We eventually called it, it used to be called the Cape Verdean News, but then we called it, it shortened it to the CVN. And... Tommy, like, for instance, on Sunday mornings, if my mother was sitting out here on the porch, and he did this with a lot of people, he'd stop over real quick on his way to church. Hello, Mrs. Costley says, how are you today? He'd give her a newspaper, give her a hug. This is the kind of things that Tommy did. That's why that statue is out there, because he touched on a lot. He touched a lot of lives with all the work that he did keeping that newspaper up. And people still today ask, why don't, even though we have uh, social media, even though we have the Internet, why don't we still have that paper going? And we were hoping that his family, and, you know, everybody can't do it all, but we were hoping that somebody in his family would had picked up and carried that on, which they, that still might happen. But I think, again, with social media, that, and which he was doing too, he did actually have a site online where he's starting to transition from the newspaper. But for the older folks, the people still like the newspaper, and he used to deliver those papers to all of the older folks in the community. So when you see that statue up there you go up and shake his hand because he, Tommy was he was on it. He did wonderful things for this community with that newspaper.
1: Yeah, I mean I like that chapter that your dad concluded with uh because um it's important for younger people uh not just younger people but even people um, of age to understand uh some of these people, you know, they deserve our respect. They de- they deserve um, you know, not only do they deserve our respect, they deserve our appreciation for the work they did because, mm-hmm. right, we benefit from it. Uh, but the uh, to conclude, another thing I, I I I appreciated that your dad thought about, I don't know if it was you or him, but he actually uh, included some, um, you know, some articles like from newspaper. I know he had... Um, uh, the thing I put about those Red in R
0: there. R- yeah, I oh, added okay. those so. in there because I knew the importance of it. I had went through all of my father's letters, and he used to give my brother and I copies of his letters, but I went through and I made a file of all the letters in the specific categories. I added the letters. Anything other than the chapters, and I divided those chapters up, is things that I added because I knew that it would it, it would enhance the book, like the quotes from different people, the photographs, the letters in the back, the poetry, all of that other stuff, the appendixes, I added in there. I had one of his mentees uh, write the forward. I had some other people I asked permission, like Leon Dash, who was a good friend of the family. He wrote letters uh, when he was with the Washington Post about uh, Cape Verde. I included those letters in there. So everything other than what he writes about in individual chapters, which he sometimes didn't break them up into chapters. I broke those up into chapters. That was a lot of editing, but it was what my father would have wanted. He would have wanted some of those letters included in there. And even the gentleman, uh, that uh, the K. Verdian gentleman, that I added his poetry, I went and met with this gentleman who was very, very nice, and asked him if I could add his poetry to the book in the back, which I did. So, yes. Those are my father's letters that he wrote throughout the years. I have stacks of them, and those are the ones I decided to include because I felt that it complemented everything else that he said in the book. Even when you talk about the sports, and when you talk about him writing letters to uh, Red Auerbach and, and even to the um, uh, the coaches here that wouldn't allow our great Verdean players to even leave the bench because they knew that the other kids, the Caucasian players, would get the opportunity to go to to go on and to uh, be accepted on you know these uh, NFL the basketball teams or whatever, and those were some of the things that used to just drive my father crazy. He used to, those are the things that he fought for for the equal rights for these kids, uh, the basketball players or whoever it was to have the same uh, leverage, the same uh, you know opportunities to advance either through sports or through um, Uh, through academics, whatever it was, you know, those are the things that when we talk about that, you know, just a lot of that doesn't happen today.
1: Wow. That, that, uh, I want to congratulate you on that, on that idea because I think it just, it just gave a a extra, you know, like a bonus for, you know, for the price of, uh, of the book. I mean, this, this was good because it, 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 it really, um, it really connected it uh, to to give us a, a, another sense outside of opinions or writings and so forth. But it gave it gave us a reference um, that was um, that that was a, a great touch. Now to conclude um, our our podcast, whose idea was it to end with the Amilcar Cabral um, speech on liberation and culture?
0: That was mine, because I knew my okay. father no, had a but... strong admiration yes. for Amilcar Cabral, and I actually, if you see my picture in the back of the book with Anna Maria Cabral, who I have great admiration for as well, and I just knew that that's what my father would want. He would want it with that letter, and you know, he was channeling through me. I knew him. We used to talk politics all the time. And I knew that if anything, if he saw this book today, he would be very proud.
1: I think so. And if I'm not mistaken, that was the speech in Syracuse that uh, uh, he did in honor of a uh, uh, former leader of Mozambique, Mandelan. Yes, that the speech I believe it. Uh, I
0: haven't looked at in a while, but I believe that's what it was. Um, yeah, a lot of people it.
1: don't know that. amilka Cabral came to the United States a few uh I think a couple of times and, and he was invited to Syracuse University in uh New York um, upstate New York and um and he did a speech, a very, very important speech uh right. that was I in thought it was a beautiful touch.
0: Yeah, that was in nineteen seventy when he did that speech. And um Yeah. It was and that's why I said that if if my father, if I was working with him when I was doing you know, editing the book that he would have said, Yes, let's absolutely put that in there. So unquestionable. No,
1: that's a great speech. That speech really is a speech that uh um you know need to be studied and analyzed. Um, I would say especially for, for K Verdin um you know, young K Verdin's going to college. I mean you uh, one person can do everything but there's there's so many opportunities in this book for people to pick a chapter and run with. And, right. and, uh, and 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 do something scholastic but this book also for high schoolers or even middle schoolers it's an opportunity i always uh, i've been telling my daughter that we're going to start uh, i'm going to read this again with her um for because if when they give you a my opinion is that whenever you, you have i'm speaking to converting folks of converting descent in general but anyone if you got, if you got to do a reading about something, you know, just read about your people. At the same time, you you'll become better reader, but you'll learn something that's um, you know that's relatable to to you, and it's something that you could you you could take with you forever, as opposed to reading like some fictional novel and so forth. Now, this is something that's right. really practical, and, and so. I, right. I, well, let I me you, the, let me uh, interject
0: uh, interject this to say to you, as you said yes. something earlier in our conversation that people say that you're very intelligent, whatever. and Lewis, you are, and I'm very proud of the fact that you're doing what you're doing out there with the podcast and with everything else that you're doing because it's people like you that keep it going, and so you need to you need to accept that and know. And, uh, honor the fact that yes, you are very intelligent. So just keep going with that.
1: Well, well, thank you. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate the, I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, although I, for some reason, I don't know what it is, but, uh, I I don't, I, I always admire people that I believe has real, real natural gifts and they've been able to identify it and work on it. But, um, I'm still. I think I'm still looking for mine. <laughs> I'll continue looking for it. Hopefully, I'll find it. But I appreciate the the, the compliment. But to conclude, I really want to. Um, I I told you we'll go fast. I I apologize if we went a little bit over, but I appreciate you so much for this. Uh, I, I'll touch base with you at a later time. But la any last words you want to leave the 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 folks that are listening that will be listening. This will be archived. It will be there online. Anyone could go back and listen to it. And I think this is one of my most enjoyable podcasts I've done. Uh, I think the, the more you do, you become better. But I really, really appreciate this because I think this is something that's so practical. And, um, and I'm going to say to you, this is going to be my gift to people. If I've if got to give people any present, I'm just going to give them this book. Uh, <laughs> it's not expensive and it brings a lot, whether they read it or don't um, that 's their problem but to me that that 's my gift to, to, to folks, especially cave herding people or people cave herding descent so i'll leave the uh, i'll turn the the mic over to you for any last um, words you want you want to say, and then um I will touch base with you at a later date. Hopefully you could assist me with a couple of other uh folks I, I, or topics i want to uh, you know, focus on.
0: Okay. I will end with this and I want to say thank you for having me on here on your podcast, but also to know one thing and as I've been doing and I want people to know that I'm continuing the work of my father by doing my documentaries on the making of the K Verde, which consists of a lot of different uh, interviews with people on all different levels. And that, you know, you'll, you'll start to see more of that when they visit my, um, uh, Facebook page is a group that I have called The Making of the Cave Verdean but I also want to say that the one thing in when I first did my first documentary I always ask people, tell me are you proud to be a Cave and that is the main thing that we all know and the thing that I say, I am very proud to be a Verdian. so I'll end with that
1: Thank you so much, I want to wish you uh, you know, um, a great rest of the, the Sunday and, you know, weeks to come and so forth. And I appreciate your time so much. And uh, y- your, your, your dad, is, uh, uh, he's a hero for, for thinking of this idea. Very simple. Sometimes the greatest things are the simplest things. But no one's, no one's done it. He did it. And he left us with a, an incredible uh, uh, treasure to, to look at. And I think this is something that is needed and um, and this is something that can really kick people to go into different directions, and it, it will it will awaken a lot of dormant uh, talents in mind, and also for people to appreciate and give honor and respect to to those that came before and laid the foundation, and your dad's certainly one of them. He's certainly uh, one of those uh, folks, and he needs uh, he deserves our respect, and you as well. I mean. Uh, for for picking up where he left off, and continuing with this, and I think that says a lot uh, of him as a father as well. So thank you very much.
0: You're yeah. very welcome. Have a wonderful day.
1: All right. You too. Bye bye. Bye. In conclusion, uh, I mean this this is a was an amazing conversation. Uh, I want to thank everyone that's listened to this. Go to Amazon.com. Purchase this book. Uh, It's a must. You can have it in the Kindle format, e-reader. You can have it um, in physical. I recommend you have it in physical. I have it both in in Kindle and physical. It's something that you need to have in physical, and uh, you need to keep it uh, and and read it. This is a good opportunity for parents uh, with... um, children above 10 years old uh, in my opinion or it could be younger, why not younger uh, to do some reading every day read a couple of pages together um, it's a type of book that you could skip, pick a chapter uh, and, and read it and then uh, once you skip enough and you pick different locations different chapters, then come back and read the whole thing, you could do it like that I think uh, but it's best that you start from the beginning and you read it, I think this book it's a tremendous book for K-Verdian parents to sit and have that quality time, constructive quality time. Um, you know, one hour a week with their children and read this. I think it will the bonding will be tremendous because this is also a, a great story of a relationship between a, a father and a child. Uh, the impact that uh, Mister. Um, the impact uh, that mr Manuel had uh on um on, uh, on mrs Jeannie. is it's incredible um, of the of a father and a, and a daughter uh or it could be a father and a child a father's son it doesn't matter it's a great great uh angle as well that I look at and hopefully you folks would um, will pick up on it i really 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 urge people to do this um Estou uh, a concluir em criou, uh, agradecer tudo, tudo pessoas que teve a oportunidade de ouvir, nós dividem, nós share esse programa ali, com tudo pessoas que nós tem conhecimento dele. Uh, se tem programa na minha opinião que deve, uh, vai, fica viral é aquele, é, é uma coisa muito importante, construtivo e, e nós usa essa oportunidade ali, de, de, se nós temos para dar algum alguém presente. Uh, um presente Um a Um sobrinho, filhos uh, Irmãos, irmãs uh, Nós cumprês livro ali Via Amazon Nós mandamos para nós, uh, uh, e Para pessoas que nós Querem dar um presente É que custa show Mas é um presente que tem tchau um, esta mostra tem, Não toma tempo para pensar e para o uh, e, para pensar nestas pessoas para o dar este tipo de presente e, uh, para mim é, um, é, um que é o único as melhor presente que poder dar a um, um, uma pessoa portanto não tem coragem todas as pessoas para, para dar uh, e cumprir esse livro-lí para ler e para a trazer o chão chão Prazer trazer e esta esta para esta para, para o condições uh, condição espiritualmente intelectualmente como uma pessoa, é uma planta que se dá aquela nutrição que é necessário que é cria, portanto, que é ali é um coisa que tem coragem de todas as pessoas. Então, espero que vocês curtam esse ali, e nos dividir com todas as pessoas o máximo possível. Mais uma vez, eu te agradeço a senhora Jean Costa por seu tempo, por essa informação, uh, Para ser trabalho, dedicação, que apoia, tem ainda que esse apoio. Uh, pessoas, esforço de que ali merece nosso respeito e apoio. Uh, mas, importante, se uma flor, não te apoia a ali, não te apoia a nossa casa, Portanto, por que não? Um, ok? Então, desejo a tudo, 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 que tive a oportunidade de ouvir ali, uma continuação de um bom fim de semana, um bom domingo. Uh, que uh, Deseja que As próximas semanas Ser construtivo uh, Que nós, nós consigo tudo aquilo que Nós queremos uh, Portanto, nós continuamos A apoia a Cast uh, Para poder também Tem que espírito e motivação Para trazer o máximo possível Que ele é uma contribuição Que incrível para nós Para, para, para Um é, é praticamente um é um pagamento que se paga, uma dívida que se, que se paga para, para aqueles que vem que antes de mim, que põe aquela que que, que foi aquele fundação, que que faz o trabalho, que deixa césar uh, legados, é um forma de mim agradecer e minha dívida que tem e para isso, a pessoa a suma a Sra. Manuel Costa, a Sinha, uh, Portanto, mais com o apoio e te dar mais mais motivação. Portanto, aqui ali, termina, agradeço a todas as pessoas, desejo a todas as pessoas com continuação de Suma bom fim de semana e até a próxima.